You're listening to KBOO Portland. Tune in to Higher Reasoning Reggae every Sunday morning at 3 a.m. Higher Reasoning Reggae is dedicated to bringing international reggae word and sound power to the massive airing early Sunday mornings at 3 a.m. Only on KBOO Portland. This is Rising Up with Sonali, a weekly news and analysis program focused on economic, racial, gender, justice, and more. I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar, and you can find us online at risingupwithsonali.com. This week, workers at Starbucks locations around the country are voting to unionize. Today, we'll turn to Joe Thompson, a shift manager at a Santa Cruz Starbucks and one of the lead organizers with Starbucks Workers United. Then we'll speak with Nora Benavides, senior counsel and director of digital justice and civil rights at Free Press, about why she thinks Elon Musk's $44 billion acquisition of Twitter is a step backward for democracy. Finally, Ron Fine, legal director of Free Speech for People, will explain why his organization is forcing some GOP representatives seeking re-election, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, to face hearings about their roles in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. That's coming up in just a moment. is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Dozens of Starbucks cafes across the United States have held successful union votes and hundreds more have filed to hold votes in what is the most prominent flurry of labor organizing activity seen in decades. The first vote was held just last December at a Buffalo, New York Starbucks. While the company says it supports the right of its workers to vote in union elections, it stands accused of union busting and firing employees who are organizing. Joining me now is Joe Thompson, one of the lead organizers for the statewide organizing committee with Starbucks Workers United, who is also running for California State Assembly representative in District 28 and is a shift organizer at a Starbucks location in Santa Cruz, California. Welcome to the program, Joe. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So first, can you give us a sense of uh, what the status is right now? It seems as though every other week there is a new location or set of locations that is holding successful union votes. As I mentioned, we started with one location in Buffalo, New York in December. How far are we up to now? 
Now we have over 200 stores that have filed for union elections across the entire United States. In California, we are, you know, approaching you know, upwards of 20 stores that are organizing. A lot of the stores have gone public, and a lot of those stores are still waiting to see how our vote goes. So we're, we're actually holding our first vote count in California on May 11th, um, and this is going to be one of the biggest vote counts, you know, across the state, just so that we're really fighting for the workers here. And, you know, we want to prove that we're not only unanimous in these vote counts, but the workers really want to see the union win. Take us through the steps of how a single location, uh, Starbucks location, goes through the process from talking about unionization to actually voting. Um, for anybody who's listening right now who are working at a Starbucks that hasn't yet considered it. Well, and that, that's the thing is each store is almost different. So in our store, it really started, you know, with just me talking to my coworkers and saying, you know, enough is enough. What are we going to do about the working conditions at our store? And at other stores, you know, it, it, it starts a little bit differently. It's, you know, they start talking about, oh, another store in our district has filed. We want to support them. How can we do that? And then they'll file unionize. Um, that's exactly what kind of happened in our area. So our store was the problem store. We have a lot of issues at our store um, from, you know, being underworked and over, you know, underpaid and, you know, really being exploited by Starbucks. Um, and once we filed to unionize, another nearby store wanted to show their support and their stores actually ran, you know, pretty decent, but they still know the value of unionizing. And they know that, you know, as workers collectively, we're stronger together. So they joined the movement to fight alongside of us. Um, and now we'll be the first to unionize Starbucks in all of California. Why did it take so long for California to get on board? Um, you know, California, you would imagine, is a liberal stronghold as it's been seen, but we've seen more activity in New York, even in Arizona. Yeah, so California was, you know, my store was the very first to file, and, you know, I'm only 19 years old, and now watching the movement grow has been amazing. Um, I think the main reason California is because we, you know, California does have better working conditions and workplace protections than a lot of other states. Um, for example, you know, our minimum wage is $15 an hour, which is pretty decent compared to some other states where it's still the federal minimum wage. Um, and there's also better workplace protections. But again, this, the issues at Starbucks are a lot deeper than that as well. You have a company that continually almost prides itself on, you know, maximizing profits when it really is hurting the workers. And I think the main reason why California was, again, super late in joining the movement is because we wanted to see what Buffalo could accomplish first. And after watching them win their vote, then we really started organizing and getting our stores together to show that we are in this together and we're fighting alongside our, our fellow partners across the country. Let's talk about Starbucks Workers United. This is not a traditional uh, union story, right? Uh, we've had labor organizing in this country follow a certain formula. Unfortunately, our labor laws are sort of stacked against traditional forms of organizing, it seems. Uh, very few Americans these days are in unions. What's a secret to Starbucks Workers United's success? I mean, to me, it, it's very simple. Starbucks is mostly ran and, and the workers are very young. But almost all the workers I talk to about, you know, organizing or unionizing, you know, across from California to Idaho, Texas, all these different stores, um, they're all young people who are growing up during the Bernie Sanders era. And, you know, we're recognizing that 
we have power together and young people are so fed up with not only you know their workplaces and what's happening there but just with, with a lot of other things too you know we're witnessing climate change that is uh, that is impacting you know millions of people across the globe and we're asking ourselves like what are we going to do to stand up and fight back against these corporations that are not only polluting the earth but also not paying us a living wage and the simplest answer is to unionize you not only gain so many collective benefits and collective rights um, but you really gain that true partnership between workers and again starbucks likes to claim it's super progressive and a lot of the workers there are but we're the ones actually holding starbucks accountable to that standard Give us, give me a sense of the issues at stake here. Uh, Starbucks is a huge corporation. It's an iconic American corporation. Its CEO has uh, said at some point that he supports unions. Uh, founder and now you know CEO, second term CEO Howard Schultz, and then of course made very strong anti-union statements. He's been in, uh, he, he, he is, the company has forced workers into these sort of captive audience meetings where he expounds propaganda about why unions will come between workers and the company. So in, in just in terms of the, the importance, the significance of Starbucks unionizing, do you think that that can have a ripple effect across the country, a symbolic if, effect, if you will, that if Starbucks can organize and workers can organize from the ground up, maybe we can. Well, again, I tell everyone this, anyone can organize. You don't need a college degree. You don't need any special education. You just have to have passion. You have to understand that the world we are living in is falling apart and we can change that. Um, and when it comes down to it, people just need to recognize that the power we have, again, together, when we are united against you know, a billion dollar corporation is, is much more than just one voice. And you know, the workers at Starbucks from every state that is organized, and you know, we have over 30 unionized stores throughout the entire United States now, most of them winning unanimously, just shows how the workers are standing up and fighting back against billion dollar corporations and winning. And we're giving the ability for other workers who are watching our movement, who want to organize, want to reach out to unions, we're telling them it is possible and you should do it. Because it's not only going to be better for you, but it's going to be good for your coworkers, your overall life satisfaction, and it's really going to help you in the long run. What's the next step after a, an, a location, a Starbucks location has voted to join a union? How does it work? Because usually the hard work begins once workers have voted to join a union, they then have to come up with a contract or agree with their employer on the contract for how those workers are to be treated. We have hundreds of Starbucks locations and Starbucks tried to say that a single location was too small of a bargaining uh, unit uh, collective because there might just be a few dozen workers per cafe. The National Labor Relations Board struck that down and said, no, that they can go forward. So now what? Will there be hundreds of contracts that each, you know, that, that the hundreds of cafes, uh, locations, signs with the, with the company? Yes, so the hardest part is not actually winning. The hardest part is negotiating a good contract for workers. Um, and the good thing about what's happening at these stores is with these unanimous votes, it really is showing that the workers 
are not only so in favor of the union, but we want to win not only a good contract, but good benefits for all workers. Um, so on the statewide organizing committee for California, um, currently we're putting together an action plan of what we want to really negotiate for statewide benefits. Um, and with, you know, over all the stores that we're organizing right now, we're going to be using that contract as the, the footstep of what we want to see across the state, uh, standardized benefits for all workers. Um, but then each store, again, will have their own bargaining unit. And these bargaining units negotiate specific benefits that are needed for those stores. Um, our store in Santa Cruz, as I mentioned, has had a lot of security issues. Because of that, we want to negotiate, you know, a security guard into our contract just to make sure that we're protecting our workers. Um, that's one of the things that you can add on to these contracts. Um, but really, we're going to be fighting for, you know, better wages, credit card tipping, all these things that are going to be benefiting workers. And one of the things, too, that Starbucks has used as a union-busting tactic is union dues. Um, but union dues don't even start until after you have a contract. And the workers aren't going to vote for a contract that wouldn't cover our own union dues. Um, so it really just to show that how disconnected Howard Schultz and Starbucks upper management is from the actual on the ground organizing. And, and that's it. You bring up a really important point. Misinformation is um, is, is rampant. Uh, companies have created a, uh, you know, they have, of course, have the money to hire very slick public relations campaigns, union busting corporations that they bring on board and consultants that they bring on board. We've seen companies like Amazon, uh, Walmart, et cetera, fight unionization by calling attention to the fact that union members have to pay dues. Um, you know, oh, they're going to take your a, a chunk of your paycheck for no good reason. So how has Starbucks Workers United countered that misinformation campaign? So there's a lot of things we're doing. So before a union really goes public, we're inoculating our organizers. We're telling them, here's exactly what Starbucks is gonna say, here's why it's wrong. Um, and what, and what kind of helps with that is when you have those one-on-one -on -one conversations with workers, you're not only building up their support for the union, but you're also telling them the truth and you're telling them what exactly is going to happen and like with our proposals too we're not only covering union dues we're expanding benefits for workers that would cover union dues tenfold um, a lot of things we're fighting for include you know obviously just general wage increases we're also including adding credit card tipping additionally we're adding an option where if someone calls out for a shift and you're still you know continuing working you actually get paid for that call out and that you know, wages of that person get split up among the people who are working. Um, and then the last thing that really is gonna be impactful for workers is having Starbucks pay for all of our healthcare. Currently, Starbucks pays for a portion. We're gonna try and negotiate our contract to have it paid for all, just to make sure that our workers are being fully taken care of and they have the most and best benefits for all people. Will the locations have different contracts or will there be certain kinds of contracts state by state or region by region? Or are you fighting for all workers across the country to sign on to the same contract or the same kind of contract? So yeah, each, I'm assuming each contract will be different for each store just because of what I mentioned earlier about how you know we, we want workers to have a contract that best fits their store and is tailored to their store. But we're also fighting for statewide contracts as well. So in California, the statewide organizing committee is comprised of workers through each store that has filed to unionize. Um, and we're going to be negotiating a contract 
that will serve as the the floor for this this the state. You know, it's going to be increasing. You know, our hourly wages. It's going to be fighting for you know job security, and and really, it's going to be a good contract for all workers. That even if you just get that contract, that'll be a, that'll be a plus for you. Um, but again, additionally, each store also has the option to negotiate further. Um, our Santa Cruz store is also going to be negotiating, you know, specifically for our store, having that security guard, having extra people staffed there, just to make sure we don't have to deal with any security issues while at work. People should feel safe when they come into work and they shouldn't feel threatened or have to deal with any sort of, of violence or intimidation at work. Joe, you mentioned the issue of tips, and this is a really important point. Tipped wages around the country are generally not covered by minimum wage laws. Um, for decades, we've had maybe longer uh, workers in the service industry that rely on tips legally be paid less than the minimum wage is. And, and of course, for workers at Starbucks, I imagine this is a big issue because many workers are behind the counter in the, you know, basically expecting to get tipped wages. And then if you have a bad shift and you don't get enough tips, you may go home with a paycheck that works out for less than minimum wage. Is that going to be a big issue in the conversation? contract uh, negotiations? I think so. So right now, you know, with our, well, one of the things we're fighting for is credit card tipping. So Starbucks does allow cash tips and mobile app tips, but they do not have a system for credit card tipping. Um, obviously, if you go into local coffee shops, even they have that option where they can do, you know, 10%, 15 or 20%, just to show your appreciation for your baristas. That is a major thing that we're going to be negotiating our contract. And we want it to start as soon as possible because that added 10% from you know most customers is gonna be a significant wage increase just by itself. And it's really gonna show that like the workers deserve this pay and Starbucks can absolutely afford to do it. I understand that Howard Schultz has also announced um, what just seems such a clear cut retaliation against union organizers that he's considering better benefits, but only for non-union workers. How do you respond? Um, to me, again, I would tell Howard Schultz this any day, that is clear union-related retaliation against organizing. Um, it's unlawful. And once he actually puts those benefits into place, we will 100% be filing charges against him um, for this unfair labor practice. We filed them in Santa Cruz for multiple against our other management, and we're not afraid to take on Howard Schultz. Um, he is a bully. He's bullied many partners in, in Southern California, including a close co-worker of ours down there in Long Beach. Um, and it, it really does just show that he is disconnected from his workers. And when it comes down to it, the workers are the ones who are making Starbucks operate day to day across the United States. It's not Howard Schultz. It's not Rossanne Williams. It's the workers. Joe, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Best of luck to you both in your political campaign and in the organizing union organizing effort and, and the vote at the Starbucks Santa Cruz location. Uh, give out a website for both of those, for, for your campaign and for the union. Uh, for the union, just go to StarbucksWorkersUnited.org. For our campaign, you can go to Joe, F-O-R for assembly. Um, and, and, you know, both of those websites are amazing, um, specifically, you know, for... Starbucks Workers United, you can also follow us on social media. Um, same thing for my campaign too. It's, it's all at Joe for Assembly. Good luck to you, Joe. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.
My guest has been Joe Thompson, one of the lead organizers for the statewide organizing committee with Starbucks Workers United. They're also running for California State Assembly Representative District 28 and are a shift organizer at a Starbucks location in Santa Cruz, California. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The world's richest man has made a successful bid to purchase one of the world's biggest social media platforms. Twitter just accepted Elon Musk's $44 billion cash buyout offer. Musk has supporters and detractors on both sides of the political spectrum. To some, his acquisition is a good thing. To others, not so much. According to Reuters, quote, Musk, who calls himself a free speech absolutist, has criticized Twitter's moderation. He wants Twitter's algorithm for prioritizing tweets to be public and objects to giving too much power on the service to corporations that advertise. But the group Free Press has said that Musk's takeover is a huge step backward for Twitter. My guest is Nora Benavides, Senior Counsel and Director of the Digital Justice and Civil Rights Division at Free Press. Welcome to the program, Nora. Thank you so much, Sonali, for having me. So first, what is it about uh, this bid that troubles you the most about the fact that Twitter will now be owned by the world's richest man? Well, a number of things concern me. First and foremost, you know, I think we don't know what the future will hold for this Musk era of Twitter, but we do know what Musk's own track record has been when it comes to speech he dislikes. And I feel that his ability to be an accountable steward for this huge community, uh, we're looking at 330 million users around the world, is shaky at best. He has a very long history of shutting down others when he doesn't like what they say. From his time at Tesla, uh, you know, he shut down an analyst on an earnings call because he felt that the company's capital requirements were boring. Um, he disparages re reporters regularly who critique him. He rallies his base of online bullies to uh, engage in harassment of others. And so there's a kind of, um, I would say, concern we have that he doesn't really adhere to the values of an open square, which should be offering equal speech for all. And yet he claims that he is a free speech absolutist? What does that mean? Well, I actually think he really seems more of a kind of anything goes uh, for Twitter future CEO. 
I think that vision is one in which he imagines social media moderation of content will just happen. Uh, but it doesn't just happen by magic alone. It must have guardrails. And so his imagined future that Twitter will somehow uh, be an open and accepting square, that has to happen very carefully through a number of things that would increase better moderation and enforcement on the company's service. What are the main problems that you, that free press, your organization, really identify Twitter having now? I mean, Twitter is one of the world's biggest social media platforms. And yet, you know, we see misinformation rampant. There's a lot of digital bullying of, of people of color. Can you summarize what you think are Twitter's most pressing problems? Sure. You know, we're facing a midterm election this coming November. And with that on the horizon, I think so much about who will otherwise be silenced or have access to troubling content in the lead up to November. We know a number of things about what Twitter has done in the past. It has allowed content that would disenfranchise or dissuade voters from engaging in the electoral process. It has also allowed right-wing content to be amplified and engaged with uh, far more than other content. Uh, and so we're really looking at a platform that for each of us may look different and yet ultimately is promoting and amplifying and preferencing some of the most misleading, hateful, and extremist content. And so that means that in the lead up to the elections this year, there are a number of things Twitter must do. In the past, we at Free Press and through coalitions like Change the Terms have tried to work with and pressure Twitter to do more, to make the platform accountable to its users around the world. I think now with Musk, there are three things the company should be doing. One is it should fix its algorithms and other systems that promote the most misleading and hateful content. Two is it should be protecting users equally. And that means whether you're in one place in Europe, if you're in Africa, if you're in the United States, regardless of where you live, the company should be making sure that it has robust measures and mechanisms in place and that it has enough resourcing across language. And then third is it needs to become more transparent about its amplification and its moderation practices. We're really still dealing with so much unknown about how the company operates, and we need to open up that black box. Now, according to the, the Reuters quote uh, that I shared in my introduction, that was Reuters' summary of Musk's position, it seems as though on the surface, he has some of the same issues that Free Press does. I think that's a great point. And that's why I'm, you know, I think there's really a question mark as to what this Musk era will look like. Um, not everything that he has put out on the table for his vision is something to bristle at. Some of it is deeply troubling, but other proposals and ideas he has are things that I know some tech ethicists and other communities might welcome. And so we have to be vigilant from a civil society perspective. Now is the moment to come in and to come together with a kind of solidarity around the things that must change at Twitter for everyone across the world. 
Let's talk about the issue of, of hate speech in particular. You know, there's a big misunderstanding, generally even sometimes on both sides of the political spectrum, about what free speech really is and whether one has the right to spew hate speech, whether free speech, as it's understood in the Constitution, applies on a private platform like Twitter or not. We saw President, uh, former President Donald Trump's uh, Twitter feed really uh, be a destructive force, not just on the national scale, but on the international scale. And we also saw that Twitter didn't apply the rules equally to him. They, they held other people accountable for the same infractions that they allowed Trump for a long time to go, you know, unaccounted for um, until, you know, he until January 6th, 2021, after which he was finally uh, kicked off of the platform. So when it comes to the issue of hate speech versus free speech, what are your concerns? A lot of people have said Musk's purchase of Twitter means that Trump will return. Well, much of what Musk has said that he hopes Twitter can actually adhere to free speech values sound great uh, in theory. Uh, the question is how that will be implemented. Um, a private platform, of course, uh, is not adherent in the same ways that government might be to protect people and to do so in equal ways. However, to your point, part of what we know now is that um, free speech should not and is not the equivalent of free reach. And that essentially means that there are preferential ways many social media platforms engage to amplify certain users' content, to promote something that they know will bring eyeballs and engagement and profit. And that ultimately, because it has helped their bottom line, means that they are fueling and fanning the flames for the most incendiary content. That can include Donald Trump, as well as other calls for violence, propaganda, conspiracy theories. And we're now in a moment where that is the content that gets most oxygen on platforms like Twitter. It shouldn't be that way. And so people who are otherwise marginalized or using a platform like Twitter to, as a lifeline of theirs to try to get information should have access to credible information, not just the stuff that feeds the beast. Right. So the, the the problematic content isn't just being allowed to sort of flourish. It's actually getting privileged, right, on, on platforms like Twitter. It, it is. You're absolutely right, Sonali. It isn't just that the content is there for anyone to maybe come across or to find. It is being promoted by these platforms. And that's, we because, know, for example, that's because of the profit model, because the more it can scare people, the more eyeballs it can keep on its platform and expose to advertisers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see in other instances, companies like Meta have given preferential treatment to content that is misleading and extremist. We've seen it in other instances across social media platforms where that content, it sells. It's compelling, it's controversial, it gets people to like it, to love it, to share, to comment. Meanwhile, there are then inauthentic behavior and other types of mechanisms like bots that help increase engagement on those types of posts. And so when we see it, we want to engage with it. Um, and of course, for the companies, the more engagement, the more ad revenue, the more eyeballs, the money that they get. This is now a question for Musk. Uh, if money is no concern for him, 
how might he create a more equitable Twitter that actually is accountable to users? First, that means he has to fix the algorithms and he has to start promoting um, credible content and stop amplifying the worst stuff. And if he doesn't, and this is the qu next question, we live in an era of such extreme wealth inequality that it just maybe 10 years ago would have seemed ludicrous for an individual person to have $44 billion of disposable income and buy a giant company as an individual on a whim, right? Uh, if he doesn't, what are the checks and balances? I mean, Twitter, once he buys it, will be his? Well, Twitter going private to one single multi-billionaire feels par for the course for where we are. And part of what we are hoping to do is shift course, correct course. If we are building an internet and hope to build one that is more accountable to the billions of people around the world, it can't simply be that this company or that company is owned and at the whim of a single individual who might be bored and want to take on a new side project. Um, and that's where Musk's comments are so worrisome that he says this and then does that. He says he is for free speech, and yet ultimately his vision seems to really just let speech run wild on a platform. There really have to be careful considerations at play, and that means that whether it's Musk, others in high-level positions at Twitter have to be diligent in knowing that the online world has offline consequences that will affect Black, Brown, Indigenous, other communities of color, non-English speakers. The bottom line is no longer the bottom line just for Musk. Will, I mean, how, how will Twitter be reorganized if, if a single individual is buying it? I mean, you know, when we, when you have corporations with shareholders, there's some potential for uh, people to and organizations, uh, grassroots organizations to get a foothold and purchase shares and vote and try to hold those corporations accountable. But short of a sort of consumer boycott, will Elon Musk's ownership of Twitter uh, protect him, if you will, from more accountability? Well, that's an open question. Uh, and certainly there was a Twitter phone call for all employees. Uh, a lot of the murmurs were that people within Twitter were fearful, uncertain, had no idea what would uh, you know, be their own future and what the future of the company would look like. And so as pundits and experts are weighing in with these hot takes, we have to wait and see what that will look like. But Musk shielding himself potentially then from anything, uh, we've seen him do it before. And whether it's with Tesla or his other ventures, he often sits at the top and picks and chooses what gets oxygen about his companies and his comings and goings. Um, that is the very root of the problem here uh, across platforms is the kind of preferencing of different speech. And so as we move forward, those are the efforts that we will be hoping to correct course on. What does uh, free press suggest from, you know, needs to happen now from the grassroots, from people who are deeply concerned about this. You know, there's, there, there's been a lot of fear mongering and there's already 
calls from people to say, let's boycott Twitter, leave Twitter, shut down your account. Uh, are there alternatives to Twitter that are more accountable, that have better protections? Or is there any sort of potential for thinking about social media platforms like Twitter to become part of a, a commons that are, you know, government owned or at least free for uh, free from corporate control. What are ways in which the grassroots can respond to this? Well, at Free Press, you know, the transition to Musk's ownership of Twitter doesn't change any of our strategies or our organizing. In fact, it really just sharpens the need for us to double down on our organizing efforts that we have launched this month. Um, just last week, we put together a brand new campaign with Change the Terms called Fix the Feed, which is calling on major social media companies, including Twitter, to fix their algorithms, protect people equally, and show us their receipts to be more transparent. For organizers, I think this means that they must join in and amplify those calls for accountability. The stakes are so high this year, and globally we are seeing 36 determinative national elections around the world. That is huge. These social media companies are, in many instances, the place that people turn to for information. And so organizers can and have every right to leave, to boycott these platforms, but there will still be content that happens, speech that occurs. We know that the misinformation, disinformation, hateful content will continue to flourish. And so we are doubling down on our efforts to make these companies more accountable this year as we look towards those dozens of elections that will affect us all. And so just to uh, hone in a little bit on fix the feed, the idea being the, the feed, your, when, you, when you log into your Facebook or your Twitter account, the people who you follow or have friended, their posts show up on your feed. Uh, and how those posts show up, which ones are preferenced, are determined by an algorithm. Used to be way back in the beginning, you would just get a straight feed. As somebody put a post, it would show up on your feed. It was chronological. It was, you know, everybody was equally preferenced. And somewhere along the way, Facebook and Twitter realized that they could tweak how you saw posts to keep you engaged longer and then that algorithm as it's called just got more and more complex more and more hidden uh and that i am understand is what you're calling on them to to fix right it is i mean sonali i remember the days when as you're describing there were you know photos of your neighbor's cat or your yeah. niece or your nephew or you could communicate you know in ways that felt like actual social media to make it fun, to make it engaging. We're in a different moment now. And unfortunately, these algorithms have become so complex um, and such a black box. Sometimes even the engineers don't fully grasp within these companies how their algorithms and other functions, other systems on the back end are affecting users. And so your feed may be wonderful, Sonali, but it may not. Uh, it may be full of some of the worst content. It could be that you are getting ads given to you that contain misleading information about the election uh, this coming November or other content that you never sought out 
but it's being shown to you because these companies are profiting from it and are ultimately mismanaging their own companies. They are being irresponsible to you and to me and to other users. And so our call to fix the feed is really a broad call for organizers, for tech ethicists, for researchers to say, we demand that these companies do better. They know how to do better. They have piecemeal shown us that when it is high time to be accountable, uh, for example, in the 2020 election period, we know that Facebook and Meta was able to put guardrails in place for a brief period just a few days around that November 2020 election that helped de, uh, sort of quell and, and de-maximize uh, the kinds of worse stuff. And unfortunately then, Facebook turned those mechanisms off, um, disbanded so much of their civic integrity team. That's one example of what we ultimately then saw as one major connection to January 6th. And so these instances help point us towards that the, the feed is not what we have sought out. It's not a place to engage with each other or to connect. It's a place for these companies to make money, uh, to get ad revenue, to be pushing stuff that is mobilizing hate and extremism and disinformation. Well, I want to thank you so much, Nora, for joining us today. Give out uh, relevant websites for people who might want to find out more about the work you're doing. Oh, wonderful. Well, first, always check us out at freepress.net. We are activating around a number of campaigns this year. Of course, number one is Fix the Feed. And you can check out that campaign at changetheterms.org. So thank you so much, Sonali, for your time. That's uh, changetheterms.org, and we'll post a link to that. Thank you so much, Nora. My guest, Thanks, is, my guest has been Nora Benavides, Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene on Friday testified at a hearing to determine whether she should be allowed to run for re-election given her role in supporting the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. Under the Constitution's 14th Amendment, Section 3, quote, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same. 
My guest is Ron Fine, legal director of Free Speech for People and a constitutional lawyer who previously served as assistant regional counsel in the U.S. EPA. He's co-author with John Bonifaz and Ben Clements of The Constitution Demands It, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump. Welcome back to the program, Ron. It's a pleasure to rejoin you. So first, uh, tell me the role that your organization, Free Speech for People, has played in this hearing of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Free Speech for People is a national nonpartisan nonprofit organization. And starting in 2021, uh, we realized that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which is also known as the Insurrectionist Disqualification Clause, would apply to many high elected officials who had been involved in January 6th. And so we put together a legal team, uh, both including our own staff lawyers and also outside counsel, to file challenges against uh, Madison Cawthorn uh, running for election in North Carolina, Marjorie Taylor Greene in Georgia, and uh, several candidates in Arizona, all based on the, the same fact, which is that the disqualification clause of the Constitution says that anyone who took an oath of office to support the Constitution, but then broke that oath and engaged in insurrection is disqualified from public office. So what happened at the hearing on Friday? Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who was very sort of proudly part of the Stop the Steal movement, uh, you know, certainly seems to have on the surface of it supported the insurrection. When asked about it, what did she say? How did she sidestep the questions? Last Friday, uh, Representative Green took an approach of strategically not remembering anything that could be harmful to her. Uh, in many, many instances, her answers were evasive, uh, half denials, uh, I don't recall, I, I don't remember. Uh, in many cases, she would uh, deny something and then be shown a, a video or other evidence that she had in fact said it, and, and then she would come up with some explanation for why she hadn't really said it. And uh, one of the most striking uh, examples of that uh, came out after the hearing. She had said very clearly at the hearing last Friday that she didn't remember ever having asked President Trump or the White House Chief of Staff to declare martial law. And then on the Monday after the hearing, uh, it emerged that she had done exactly that. Right. So let's talk about how uh, there is this huge trove of... Um of texts that CNN has unearthed that shows correspondence between Mark Meadows, then Chief of Staff, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and that small universe of people that was hell-bent on keeping Trump in office. What did those texts show? Well, there's a, a lot of them, and I, I won't claim to have read all of them by any means. Uh, but what they show is that these efforts over the course of several months uh, began with uh, maybe uh, efforts that could be categorized as bad faith, but at least lawful uh, approaches to uh, overturning the election. Although some people even before the election were already planning uh, to challenge and, and overturn it. Uh, but certainly by the time we got into late December and early January, um, many of these uh, figures and officials who were either uh, officially part of Trump world or, or had close contacts were openly advocating for uh, the election to be essentially stolen uh, 
via you know uh, sneaky congressional maneuvers and involving uh, Mike Pence and and dubious uh, uh, theories about how he could unilaterally reject votes. We, we had heard some of this already, but to see the actual text messages uh, and, and to see things that people have denied, just like Marjorie Taylor Greene denying that she called for uh, martial law, to see it right there uh, in the in the in the words of the, the people who sent these messages is pretty striking. So would these texts have made a difference during last Friday's hearings? The text came out on uh, the text messages, you know, were part of the CNN expose on Monday. The hearing took place a few days earlier. Would it have made a difference? Well, we certainly would have uh, put them up um, after she said she didn't remember calling for martial law, uh, just as we did for many, many other occasions where she couldn't remember having made a statement and then uh, we were able to refresh her memory by showing her her own past videos or tweets. We definitely would have put that up and asked her uh, once again whether uh, those were her words in her own text messages. Uh, and now that uh, the hearing is, is passed, of course, we're uh, still uh, uh, considering um, the best way in which to use it. How historic was that hearing? Has the 14th Amendment, Section 3 of it, um, been used in this way, or at least invoked in this way before? And what's the next step for Green after Friday's hearing? The disqualification clause of the 14th Amendment had not been used in a very long time. The, the last time there were court cases uh, considering whether somebody was disqualified was uh, 150 years ago. So our getting Representative Green on the stand was not only the first time that any member of Congress involved in January 6th has been forced to answer questions under oath, but the, the first time in since the uh, you know mid to late 19th century that anyone at all has been put on this type of, of hearing. And in terms of the next steps, uh, there's a series of uh, legal briefs that will be filed before the judge, and he has said that he aims to issue his written decision in early May. So this could work. It could prevent Green uh, from running for re-election later this year in the midterms, um, and, and potentially if it, get, if there, it sets a precedent that could apply to Madison Cawthorn and others? Absolutely. We wouldn't have brought this if we didn't think that it, it could work, and, and it, it ought to work. If the judge fairly and impartially applies the facts and the law, then he will find that Marjorie Taylor Greene engaged in insurrection. The most important thing is that we're reaffirming the importance and uh, centrality of the United States Constitution and its essential provision that after the Civil War, uh, we as a nation decided was essential to protect our constitutional democracy by saying that anyone who broke their oath to support the Constitution and then engaged in insurrection is forever disqualified from public office. Could this apply to Trump? The 13th, I mean, 14th Amendment, Section 3 includes vice president or president. Absolutely. So if Donald Trump chooses to run for election again in 2024, we will file multiple candidacy challenges just like this in multiple states. We've already written to chief elections officials uh, of, of all 50 states plus the District of Columbia, warning them that this is coming and to prepare for it. And if he runs again, we will file those challenges. 
And so what's also now uh, going to happen with the other members of Congress? When do we expect to see Madison Cawthorn? And are these hearings state hearings, um, you know, these federal hearings? How, how does it work, you know, if, if, if Cawthorn is in a friendly state versus green, um, would there be a difference? The process is a little different in every state because every state has its own election laws and its own ways of filing candidacy challenges. But these have all been filed using state law processes. We haven't filed any claims in federal court. What has happened is that, for example, Madison Cawthorn ran to federal court to try and block the North Carolina state proceeding from moving forward. Mm -hmm. And we did experience a temporary setback when a judge uh, granted his request, which we now have on a fast-tracked appeal to a federal court of appeals. But all of the challenges that we're bringing are in the state courts or state administrative processes themselves. And so it matters who the judges are. It always matters who the judges are. I think in the case of uh, Madison Cawthorn, while I don't always like to attribute a judge's decision to uh, politics of the president that appointed them, but the, the judge who granted the injunction uh, to stop the North Carolina state proceedings that we filed uh, had been appointed by President Trump. Uh, he based his decision on a bizarre theory that an 1872 congressional amnesty for ex-Confederates actually applied to Madison Cawthorn. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene tried the same argument with a different federal judge, and uh, and it did not work at all for her. So that's why we're very confident that that ruling in the Cawthorn case will be overturned on appeal. Who else could this apply to in light of the text, the, the trove of thousands of texts that CNN acquired and has made public? There are implications that, uh, you know, the, many members of the House GOP were in on, on, on this, you know, looking for any possible way to overturn the election. Yeah, so we, we will still need to review uh, these texts to see if they you know, change um, the, the pool, you might say, of, of who uh, crossed the line there. Uh, and to be clear, it's, it requires more than just somebody who objected to certification of electoral votes. Uh, although the objections that were uh, made to the electoral votes of Arizona and, and Pennsylvania were completely baseless and, and made in bad faith, members of Congress are allowed to cast those types of votes for or, or raise those objections. But there are those who crossed a different line and actually helped promote and facilitate the actual insurrection, uh, which goes far beyond anything that's part of their legislative duties. And we will be taking a look to see if there's any others uh, whom we should be challenging. Right. It's okay to legally uh, explore to explore legal avenues, if you will, of questioning vote counts, etc. But as soon as it veers into illegal activity, such as calling for martial law, that's when it gets into the territory of whatever rebellion, insurrection, etc. To use a great example, Marjorie Taylor Greene told her followers, many of whom, of course, are violent extremists, that they could not allow a peaceful transfer of power wow. and. That's a video that we played at the hearing on, on Friday, and, and she, you know, attempted to weave and, and dodge around it, but those are her words. So if this were to succeed, um, let me sort of play Democratic Party-style devil's advocate. If we were to 
uh, have you know uh, uh, crack down hard on and apply the law against what ends up in this particular case being republicans it could come back to hurt us and republicans would use it against democrats in the future etc cetera, etc cetera. you know you hear these you heard these same sorts of arguments against the impeachment of donald trump i know you and i talked a lot about that are there any of those arguments being made this time around or are democrats sort of stepping back and watching things play out because really can't have this apply to you unless you really illegally you know uh, uh, called for illegal overthrow of the government well, I want to say two things. First, we at Free Speech for People are a nonpartisan organization, yes, yes. so we don't make our decisions based on which party it, it helps or, or doesn't help uh, or, or hurts or doesn't hurt. But uh, the second point is that, you know, if any Democrats called for people to flood the Capitol to prevent uh, electoral votes from being cast, uh, leading to a violent assault on the U.S. Capitol and threats to, you know, kill the vice president and the, the speaker of the House and members of Congress having to shelter. Uh, and if any Democratic politicians were involved in that, then I think Section 3 of the 14th Amendment would apply to them, too. So what's next now, Iran, for free speech for people? Uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, there will be future determinations in Green's case as per the judge, Madison Cawthorn's uh, hearing could be coming up soon. If people want to find out more and follow the work that free speech for people are doing, you know, where can they, where can they follow it, uh, website or social media? Yeah, so on the web, we are freespeechforpeople.org, and you can learn about our work, which goes far beyond this. We, we were founded in 2010 uh, on the day of the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, which unleashed uh, corporate political spending and, and led to the creation of super PACs. And since then, we've been fighting for our constitutional democracy on, on a number of fronts, uh, both legally and in the, the grassroots. And people can also find us on social media, for example, on Twitter, uh, FSFP. And uh, they can learn about all the work we're doing in voting rights, fighting against voter intimidation, uh, again, both uh, in the courts and through grassroots action. And we'll post a link to your website from our site. Thank you so much, Ron, as always, for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. My guest is Ron Fine, legal director of Free Speech for People and a constitutional lawyer. He is also the co-author with John Bonifaz and Ben Clements of The Constitution Demands at the Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatkar. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band, Gets Up. Like us on Facebook.com slash RU with Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on Twitter.com slash RU with Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com, where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files.
90.7 FM, K282BH, Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR, Hood River on 91.9 FM. KBU is celebrating Jazz Appreciation Month all April. Support KBU and commemorate America's greatest cultural export by getting your very own limited edition KBU Jazz Appreciation Month t-shirt. Buy yours right now at kboo.fm slash jamshirt. Ready for this? Ladies 